Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 83. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, today we also have a very special guest joining us on the podcast, and his name is Jordan Sullivan. Now, Jordan, he is a dietitian as well, and he actually specializes in working with combat sport athletes. And some of you, I'm sure you would know him as the fight dietitian. So, Jordan, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Pleasure. Thanks for having us on. So, yeah, the um, the first time we heard about you was actually from one of our preceptors at uh, during our master's program because you actually went through the same course at UQ that we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were just talking about it. Um, master's of Dietetics, and I'm assuming um, Cheryl put us in contact. And, um, <laughs> yeah, Cheryl, Cheryl was one of my favorite people at uni. She, um, yeah, she did a lot of um, really great things and really helped me through the program. So. Mm. She's kind of like the mum that holds everything together. Yeah, absolutely. She's definitely the glue to that program for sure. <laughs> yeah, and she certainly likes to talk up, you know, a lot of students because the first thing Jack and I heard about you was like, oh, yeah, there was this student that went through our program and now he's living over in L.A., you know, working as a fight dietitian. So that's that's our first introduction to you. <laughs> yeah, no, not living in L.A. I wouldn't I wouldn't do that to myself. But I, <laughs> before travel restrictions, I did get to the States quite a lot, so... But, you know, like, tell us a little bit about yourself and why did you decide to pursue nutrition and dietetics in the first place? Yeah, yeah. So I guess I've always um, been super interested in uh, sports science. Um, I always say, like, back in high school, you know, when you have to go to the conventions or whatever to figure out what you wanted to do at uni, I always knew I wanted to do sports science. And I knew that from a young age. You guys remember the um, Gatorade ads that were on the TV and there was, like, the guy running on the on the treadmill and I'd always say to people like, oh, I want to I want to do that. And they're like, oh, it'd be the athlete. It's like, no, the dude with the clipboard. Like, I really want to do that. <laughs> so I've always been super interested in sports science. So I did that when I got out of university. But as I was saying before, when I was going through my undergrad, for whatever reason, I was really fixated on going to med school. And I think in hindsight, I think as a lot of people in health professions kind of go through when you're going through uni, I think it's just something that you see it as like the highest form of medical science or whatever. And I think that's a goal to um, strive for. But for whatever reason, it just didn't work out. So I, I went through my exercise and nutrition science and I kind of ditched that idea and came back to this idea of sports science and then went into a master's of dietetics. And as much as I like sports science, I much preferred the, the more in-depth science that comes with the nutrition side of it, the biochemistry, physiology and everything. So I pursued the master's of dietetics. And then upon graduating that, I wasn't, too sold on the idea of doing clinic and food service and everything else and I've been into combat sports for quite a long time and I'm pretty sure when I graduated I, I googled on like oh went to seek and put in like combat sports dietitian and to my dismay there were no jobs so um but, <laughs> same uh, with bodybuilding dietitian yeah that's right I'm sure you guys are in the same boat but um there was one guy in Australia Dr. Reed Real who now works at the UFC PI in Shanghai and he was kind of the guy I was beelining to get a mentorship underneath. But the year I graduated, he got a job in um, Florida at the Gatorade um, Sports Science Institute. So upon graduating, I, I was kind of lost in this limbo of like, you know, what do I do type thing? And there was, I had a few job offers like clinically and then in private practice and a couple others, but none of them really took my fancy and my brother was living overseas. So um, yeah, I ended up just packing up and, and going over to Canada for a six month break that ended up being about two and a half years. And, uh, you know, what were your experiences over there in Canada? Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. It was, um, I, 
in hindsight, I think everyone has 2020 vision in hindsight. It was probably the best thing that happened to me career-wise. As I went over there, I was my first thing I said is I'm not going to work in nutrition. I'm not going to do dietetics. I need to take a break from it. My first um, job was as, as like as the sports nutritionist at like a sub store or whatever. So, and then I ditched that pretty quickly. Ended up getting a job in food service where I was working with athletes at um, at one of the local universities in Toronto. So I was helping working a lot with um, like hockey players, basketball players, and then um, as I moved around Canada as the years went, I was um, always found myself in nutrition roles. Like uh, I had another job where I was at a university again at UBC in um, British Columbia, again doing nutrition. And then I, I said, okay, I'm stopping this and I'm not doing it. And I said I wasn't going to do it. I ended up going up north and going to like a ski town. And that's where a lot of the combat sports stuff kind of came into it because I was working up there just in, in a gym and I started running like boxing classes because I was um, super dead broke and I needed extra money. So I just started doing this on the side and there was a couple pros that came down and obviously having like a nutrition background, we just got talking and, and that's where the whole idea kind of started was like, hey, like these guys and knowing it from like training myself, it was like, no one really has any idea what's going on in this. And mm. these guys are doing terrible weight cuts and, and, you know, not really eating properly. And that's where the idea kind of started. Then I ended up going from the West Coast back to back to Toronto and I was training at MMA gym. And by the time I got there, it was kind of in my mind that, hey, this could be something. And I just started kind of talking to people in the gym and, and starting that way. And, and that's how the whole idea or the seed was planted, I suppose. Yeah. So, so I guess you decided to specialize in this niche because I think you've hinted that you've done mixed martial arts, perhaps. How, how long have you been an athlete yourself? I grew up playing rugby, actually. I thought for a long time that I was going to make rugby a career. But when I was about 18, I think it was, I got really badly injured and I had to stop playing. So I always used to box on my off seasons and I took up boxing a lot more serious throughout university and, and there. And I did that like as an amateur for a yeah since seriously since I was about 18 19 but I started that when I was about 12 and then um as I started traveling is when I got into the mixed martial arts it was a lot bigger of a scene when I got to Canada I started training in a couple MMA gyms over there and then um yeah started competing a bit and 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 doing pretty bad weight cuts if, if I if I remember my first really bad weight cut was at like this underground jiu-jitsu tournament in probably 2015 or 16 or something and it was terrible. And that was like a real moment to me where I was like, this is something bad. If like, I'm a guy who's got a master's degree and I don't know how to do this. And like, mm. what hope is it for these guys around us? So yeah, yeah. So I guess like having that competitive background and training quite a lot really does help. Like it helps with the inside knowledge. Yeah, I guess that's one thing with the master's that it doesn't teach you that application to, to sports really. It, uh, I mean, the, the undergraduate portion gives you all the science and which is incredibly helpful, but especially for us as well, you can't just, you're not a comp prep coach after you do the masters of dietetics. Yeah. I think the masters is fantastic for like a clinical basis. And I, now I, I think I recognize the importance of that in my practice more so than ever, because if you guys would know, I think comp prep is very similar where there are a lot of health risks that comes. There's a lot of things that you need to think about when you're doing it. And I think having that clinical knowledge, just in case something goes wrong, is really, really important. And I think that's why professionals in this area should have some type of clinical background and some clinical knowledge and clinical reasoning because, because of that off chance, right? Like 98% of the time, it'll go right. But what about when the 2% of times when it doesn't go right? Like, yeah. are you going to be able to fix that? And I think, so in hindsight, yeah, 
I think um, you can dread on about the master's program, but I think there was a lot of value, but you're right. There was a quite a bit of a lack of application, especially in the sports science. It's not like, well, for me anyway, I didn't do a sports nutrition um, placement or anything. So I very much didn't have that applied um, knowledge coming out of the mm. program. Yeah, absolutely. I, I certainly learned to value the importance of uh, energy and protein through the Masters of Dietetics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of calculations. Eh? Where did your, I guess, nutrition application to fighting begin? Like, did you kind of uh, start with like, I mean, carbohydrates used for energy and then, or where did your basis of knowledge come from in terms of the application for that? Um, so I guess like with a lot of reading, I suppose, and then like like the applied one with like myself and my teammates, I suppose, is where it started with like a, most people. I guess there was a few pieces of paper, I guess, at the time, like uh, Reed Real had written a book, Combat Sports Nutrition. Uh, Clint Wattenberg had Performance Nutrition for Wrestlers. Um, there was a paper, it's like a groundbreaking paper that kind of is called Making Weight for Combat Sports or How to Make Weight for Combat Sports. And that kind of details out the... I guess the bare bones of the application and it gives you a bit more of a framework. So in terms of like your carbohydrates or your, your protein or your fat, it kind of gives you a grams per kilogram of fat free mass guideline on what you should be aiming for and, you know, give 0.5 to one grams per kilogram of fat and then give two to 2.5 of protein and then give the remainder to the carbohydrates. So I guess like that's where I kind of got those baseline numbers to start playing around with, you know, with the guys in the gym and with myself. But, um, yeah, there wasn't a lot of info. I'm not going to lie. There wasn't a lot of great info to go out. It was kind of touch and miss back then of like, what do we do? And a lot of trial and error. So then what was exactly the path of you? You obviously, you had this spark. You discovered that you were passionate about this area. But what was the path to getting to where you are today with being the fight dietitian and having your entire team? Yeah, yeah. So I guess like when I was doing this around North America, and uh, like I said, I, I was I really wanted to do some mentoring with Reed, and then Reed came out. And when I was in North America, the the MMA scene over there is is far bigger. Well, it was far bigger than what it was in Australia. And there were a couple teams doing it over there. And so I ended up getting in contact with a couple of them. And there was one in particular who um who was doing it in the UFC at the time. And they were working with all these guys like Conor McGregor and a bunch of guys and. I learned some very big lessons, which we'll talk about later, but I was kind of like, oh my God, these are the guys doing what I want to be doing. So so I ended up linking up with them in LA, got in contact with them. They're like, hey, come over. We're doing like a certificate style thing and, and we'll, we'll go over and talk. And it was, looking back on it, it was just like a bit of a money grab for them. But like, it was cool to see it. It was cool to see like, hey, there was this team that was a team of nutritionists, quote unquote, which they weren't really nutritionists, which I later <laughs> found out. And, um, but they were doing it like they, they would take these guys through a fight camp. They'd give them all these like macros and whatnot. And then during that fight, fight week, they would guide them through the weight cut. They'd cook for them. They'd work out the food. And, um, at the time I was like, well, these guys obviously know what they're doing. They're working with this top level guy and this top level guy. And so I was, I was super interested and I kind of, not that I probably stood out, but I had a master's degree there. So I think if you're building a team and you've got someone who's interested and has the education, I think that's quite appealing. So we ended up working together for about, it was only about six months, six months. And then I kind of hung around with them and, and did a couple shadowing of um, other events around. I think there was another one in Vegas and then another one in Australia at the time, probably about two months later. And I started kind of seeing how this is applied in, in the real world. What I also kind of saw was 
how there was a huge knowledge gap and yeah. how people who weren't very educated in the field were getting away with doing this with people who were considered elite level athletes. And that to me, and I think at the start, I think if you, if you guys have ever been around that environment, there's a lot of lights and there's a lot of cameras and you, I think you get very caught up in all of that. And I think there was a couple moments and one particular moment with a female athlete in a, uh, in a sauna where we were taking blood pressure and things were getting like pretty dicey. I remember coming out of that and thinking like, this is not good. Mm-hmm. Like this is just not as to a quality that, that people should be guiding other athletes through this. It's dangerous. There's like real health consequences to this. And we, we just spoke about before, you know, 98% of the time it's probably fine. And 98% of the time it probably was fine. And I kind of saw a glimpse of what it looks like for the 2% when it's not fine. Mm-hmm. And that made me realize like, crap, like, we need to do something about this. And it kind of, when I came back to Australia, that's why I started the fight dietitian. It's like, I've seen how you can make a business in North America with this concept, but I've also seen how there's a real lack of highly qualified or adequately qualified professionals in the space. And it kind of started the theory of like, well, that's what I want to create here in Australia. Like, and it's a big reason why we work with Australian New Zealand athletes. It was like, well, we, I don't want them to be subject to what I saw in the United States. So that's yeah. pretty much where the where the, the basis of TFD started. So, you know, just, I guess, going into that a bit, what were those sort of knowledge gaps that you identified? And then how can you use your knowledge and your education to kind of fill those? Yeah, I think like a good, a good easy one is like, uh, like underfueling, right? Like everyone's going to like lose weight in a calorie deficit. It's something that I noticed straight away is like, these these diets that these guys are getting put on, they were like eight to eight hundred to twelve hundred calories or twelve hundred calorie, and everyone was getting that. Like regardless of your size, regardless of your training, like regardless of whatever, everyone was getting like twelve hundred calorie diets. And it was like if you're on a twelve hundred calorie diet and you're a ninety kilo dude training twice a day, like you're going in huge negative energy balance, right? And it's like that. And for a guy like like for guys, our bodies are pretty resilient. And I think I saw it, what, what was happening with the females, right? And it's like even over an eight-week period, and I think I saw that in that weight cut in the sauna with the female where, you know, she stopped sweating. There was like she wasn't losing any weight that week and she was all swollen up. And like that was a big one. Is like, And I think that just came and reiterated the fact that there probably wasn't that knowledge within the people advising them of like adequate energy like how, how do you even work out what an adequate how do you periodize carbohydrates between this how do you make mm-hmm. sure that they're getting quality protein and making sure they're getting their fat and then okay how do we do all of that but still be in a deficit at the end of the week i just don't think that was there i think everyone just got the same blanket approach like hey here's a diet that worked for this guy and here's a diet that worked for that guy so it must work for this guy over here so here yeah. take that so that that was a big one i suppose And did you notice, you know, obviously being so energy restricted, was that having negative implications on their performance in their fights? Uh, It's it's difficult to say, to be honest. I think, um, especially with combat athletes, like it's it's hard to say. I think I would like to believe it did. I would would like to think it would. But I think there's like a saying that like combat athletes are too tough for their own good. (laughs) And I think that's definitely like I've seen guys just, just kind of tough it out i think on paper absolutely there should be and, and now that i've kind of established my practice and we do things very differently you can see a difference and they you know qualitatively quantitatively report better diff like 
a much better training performance, you know, whether that's their recovery during training, whether that's their actual output numbers during their SNC or whatever it is coming from a, a state of energy restriction for sure at that time i i it's it's difficult to say mm. mm-hmm. yeah i think this is a good segue into like what is your team at the moment like what services do you provide for fighters to to help them yeah so essentially like it's, it's a dietetic service we have um a physio on board now dan who's um doing his phd in concussion research but the basis was it was um one was a nutrition dietetic service i think we had two big principles when I started it, it was one to kind of offer a more evidence-based scientific approach to the whole combat athlete to, to kind of be able to take them through a process of, Hey, come in, let's do an adequate assessment. Let's have a look at your metabolic markers. Let's look at your health. Let's see where you're at. Let's do a diet history. Let's do everything properly, see where you're at and then create a plan that was, you know, evidence-based and using the principles of sports nutrition for that. And I guess the second thing was I, as being able to see that, that wasn't available and in the states it's like well there's probably a lot of room for these athletes to become a lot better right so it's like by using it so our two principles are kind of using this evidence-based approach to 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 the athletes to keep them healthy in both the short and long term and then to improve them as athletes by using the concepts of performance nutrition so um the service we offer is based around that so we've got a team of dietitians a lot of the guys will come in we take guys I prefer to have them all year round. If they come in on the program, it's like, okay, we'll sign up to three, six, 12 months and we'll work through it and we'll, we'll look after your nutrition all year round. Or a lot of the time, some guys will come in and say, hey, like I'm eight weeks out from a fight, I'm 12 weeks out from a fight, can you help me do like a, a fight camp? And what we'll do is we'll, we'll figure out, okay, like how much weight you need to lose, blah, 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 go through all the assessment and we'll do a fight camp pathway with them. So. We've either got the one of the two pathways where it's like a performance year-round pathway, we call it, or there's the fight camp offering. Can you touch on that a little bit more? What what do you exactly mean by fight camp? So a fight camp is, um, so if an athlete books, say, a competition, a fight, say, let's just say MMA, because that's like uh, where a lot of our business is. So say uh, one of our UFC fighters messing me, hey, Jordy, I'm on September 12th, I've got a fight. So eight weeks out from that point, they'll go into what's called a fight camp. And so that's when they'll specifically start tailing all their training for that fight on that specific day. And so mm-hmm. eight weeks is an arbitrary number. I guess it can be whatever. It can be eight, 12, like the, the nature of the sport is that it can be short notice, three, four, two, whatever. But eight weeks is generally, if the guys have enough time, they'll um, have eight weeks in their fight camp phase. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Yeah, it sounds like a... I mean, compared to the methods you were speaking of previously, just having that one-on-one approach, especially like can do wonders and we've experienced that as well. So moving more into like the, the practice side of things, like how have you seen the evidence change, like, or that you think it has changed in the last 10 years or so compared to now? Has it changed much? Uh, probably. I think there's just more of it, to be honest. I think in the last, probably, I would say that 2011 paper by you know, James Morton, Dr. Carl Evans and Graham Close at how to make weight in combat sports that came out in 2011. I would say that's kind of like the gold standard practice for what a lot of the evidence that have come around. It's just like debating ideas around, Hey, do you actually get a size advantage from cutting weight, so to speak, or what are the performance outcomes from cutting weight? Or is there a percentage body fat that you don't see performance um, outcomes changing or is there if you go over say five percent do you see that's kind of what's changing in the research as of late 
in terms of practice, I think that 2011 paper, it's kind of been pretty set. But combat sports, nutrition and weight cutting research goes back over 100 years. Like mm-hmm. uh, wrestling has been around for a long time. And in America, wrestling has been a big thing. And they've mm-hmm. been researching these questions because unfortunately, like quite a few wrestlers have died trying to do it. Like the, there's a famous case where there's three um, collegiate ref- wrestlers. I think they all died from cutting far too much weight. So they've been looking into the... Um, the area quite a lot and i don't know if that's like a concerning fact that we've been kind of looking at this for a hundred years and there's still you know confusion around how to do it or the best way or you know should you do it all or we don't have rules and regulations that's stopping it yet but so i think like there's definitely been a lot more growth in the area and, and i've definitely seen in the last even the last three four years where a lot more people are getting much more interested, like concussion in combat sports is a really hot topic right now. And there's Mm -hmm. research groups popping up all over the world. And as it stands now, even for combat sports nutrition, more for what I do, there's a combat, like there's a specific research group in Dublin. There's one in Liverpool, John Moore in England. There's a Dr. Oliver Barley in Western Australia who does specifically combat sports research. I think Mm. even 10 years ago, I don't think you saw specific research groups that looked at this it was just more of like a I wouldn't say a taboo thing but it was something that was just like oh leave that up to the coach they'll sort that out yeah and that that 2011 paper that you keep referencing you know if you know off the top of your head what are the main take-homes from that paper in like safe ways to make weight in combat sports yeah yeah so they um outlined some like pretty cool takeaways from it it's like the first thing is it's pretty much assessing your body composition, which sounds very simple and straightforward to people like us, but I guess to some athletes, it, it's it's probably not. Like whether that's using a DEXA, whether that's using BIA, whether that's using Skinfold, get some type of analysis of where your body composition is at, because that's what you're manipulating during that fight camp phase. So it's it's go and get that set body composition, and then use that to plan what's an appropriate weight class for you based on your body composition. Uh, in the paper, they talk about resting metabolic rate testing to make sure that the athletes aren't eating at their under their resting metabolic rate. What they talk about doing in the paper, which is, I guess, up for debate, is that once you establish the RMR, get the athlete to eat at RMR. And I guess is, as long as you're their philosophy, as long as you're not going under it, you should be negating a lot of the the negatives of reds, but obviously because of the energy output from meat and, and um, exercise activity, you're going to be in a deficit. Mm-hmm. And then the caveat to that is make sure you're not losing more than one to 1.5 kilograms per, per week of body weight. Uh, from there, it's pretty much, then they go through a few supplements and whatnot, which I don't really want to talk about because I don't necessarily think that they're the best idea. But uh, <laughs> But um, that's that's essentially what they um, outlined. And then they said for a macronutrient split, if you're going to, once you get all that information, aim to have consumed 2 to 2.5 grams per kilogram fat-free mass of your protein, 0.5 to 1 gram per kilogram fat-free mass of your fat, and give the rest of your carbohyd- um, your calories to carbohydrates and then correctly periodize them throughout a training week. So that's pretty much the take-home message from that paper. And then they obviously talk about, hey, go into, if you're going to get into a fight week, you want to be getting there about eight to ten percent out. Back then, they didn't really talk about what the specific strategies are that you use, and I think that's something that's come up at late. But um, yeah, that, that's essentially the key takeaways from from that paper. But I highly recommend if anyone's um, interested in this field to go and read it and do do and uh, read the whole thing. 
Yeah, mm. absolutely. We'll have to give it a read for sure. Yeah, definitely. And it's, I guess, it, looking back again for you in hindsight, it might be. Would did you find it surprising that that was released in 2011? But then when you were going through this work in Canada, like 2016-ish, right? That they weren't applying any of those principles. Like they probably would be eating under their RMR, right? Oh, for sure, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's um. Yeah, absolutely. I think the information or good information has been there. I think it's just been hard to find. And mm -hmm. I think you guys would know this. I think this is all nutrition and dietetics as a whole. A lot of it, like you can have all the knowledge in the world, but it's the application, communication of that science. It's what's important. It's, a, it's no point us three here having all this knowledge of a master's degree and applied science and everything else in our head if no one's going to listen to it and apply. And I think especially within this world, I think other people might have realized and I'm sure it's the same in, in the bodybuilding world where other people might have realized that, hey, there's probably a bit of a business or market here. So maybe we can just fish some other information out and and that information maybe becomes mainstream. And then everyone starts thinking that, hey, that's probably the best way to do it because X, Y, and Z did it. And then, you know, X, Y, and Z's whole team or their whole gym starts doing it. So all of a sudden, this thing that, that probably isn't correct or is just like a product of what one person way back when did becomes the normal and that's like accepted so that was definitely the case in like combat sports and like i guess the info was there but there were these so many well-established i wouldn't say bad habits but probably not the best habits yeah definitely clouded by poor practice and which is a scary mm. thing sometimes right yeah like uh, especially in physique sports the biggest guy in the gym if he takes this supplement then everyone takes it so uh, yeah the same deal but I guess on the same topic of practice like one of the more infamous topics that we've heard about is the water cutting so like would you be able to give us a rundown of like what it is why people do it and etc yeah yeah so I guess um a lot of the big issues around like this whole area and it's about so you break it up into two terms I guess is like weight cutting and then there's water cutting I suppose and, and the practice of weight cutting isn't what we talk about in a fight camp where a fight camp you're doing your weight descent and you're you're losing physical body fat and that's what we call the weight descent when you're coming in that fight camp for six seven eight weeks whatever it is when you get to that final week before you're weighing because most of these guys are weighing 24 hours before their their, their fight day you do what's called a weigh-in so you go up on stage and you step on a scale and you go okay well, like say you have to be 57 kilos 72 kilos you have to be that contracted weight what the guys will do the week before that is what we call cutting weight. Now, cutting weight is a combination of, of a few things, including the water cut. So cutting weight includes a lot of the guys in common practice would be like removing carbohydrate to remove, say, glycogen, and then removing, say, sodium, and then completing, say, like a water load. And what you're doing in that period is just manipulating body fluid to, to uh, we call it like artificially lose weight. The water cutting is what usually occurs in the last 48 to 24 hours, hopefully even less if you're doing it properly, is when guys will actively or passively dehydrate, meaning they'll either sweat in a sauna or they'll sweat via working out to lose whatever is left on that weight to make that contracted weigh-in weight. So I guess water cutting is just sweating, mm -hmm. <laughs> essentially. So and is are there some best practice guidelines for doing this? And are there actual benefits, you know, to cutting weight through cutting water? Uh, I, at the, as it stands, there's no best practice guidelines as it is. There, there's a few, like, uh, reviews, I guess, like systematic reviews. And, and I know the Australian Institute of Sport have put together, like, um, 
a few documents about it. As it stands, no, there's no best practice guidelines. So, um, but in saying that, there are case studies that exist that highlight what can happen when you do this um, terribly bad. So a good one is by Andy Casper and his team at Liverpool, John Moores, where they where they took an athlete, and uh, I could get the numbers up. I'll run it off the top of my head, but um, he cut something like 14% of his body weight in the week prior to the um, to the to the fight, and on the day of he cut something like 8% of his body weight, and they they took blood measures and. Obviously, when you're dehydrating and you're manipulating that that fluid in your body, it's not natural. It's not normal, right? So you're pushing your physiological systems to an extreme. And, and so what they found with him was when they took that, that he had raised level of creatinine, um, which was suggested of kidney damage. He's, um, they wanted to do a um, an aerobic test, so like a VO2 max or even like a sub-VO2 max with him. He, he physically couldn't stand up. They were struggling to draw blood from him. From what they found is um, he was at high risk of hyponatremia because his um, blood sodium levels were so high because his fluid was out of whack. Um, his RMR throughout the week dropped dramatically. So what they uh, assessed by the end of him doing this drastic water cut, I suppose, in combination with this bad weight cutting is that he put his kidneys and this is an external nephrologist came in and said, well, he's at high risk of kidney damage and, and long lasting kidney damage from the dehydration. And he's also at this high risk of hyponatremia and then the pressure on his heart by having to pump around the fluid, like pump around blood with the lack of fluid. And so it's, it's really can be a really high risk activity. And, and, and that's kind of a big thing with us is what we want to educate and, and move away from, because you see this a lot in combat sports and you probably see this a lot in, in your guys area with bodybuilding where guys will just, I don't know, remove fluid for 48 hours and then they'll go sit in a sauna for, you know, three, four, five hours and they're just sweating, sweating, sweating. That water's got to come from somewhere. And and we know that there's even even though there's no set limits, we know that there's numbers where that can be done somewhat safely and we know that we can rehydrate and recover that. But beyond that, we don't know. And that's the scary part. It's like if you're sitting in that sauna for three, four, five hours and you haven't drunk water for forty eight hours, we don't know. Like we know that, that that fluid is coming out from inside your cells. We don't know how long it takes to get that back in. We don't know what the long-term health consequences are. We don't know what this is doing. Are you developing scar tissue on your on your kidneys, on your liver? Are you are you removing fluid from your brain that's not getting back in and then you're going into a cage to fight someone where you're getting punched yeah. in the face? So it's like there's a lot of these things that we just don't know. And so that's the whole scary thing about water cutting is that there's so many unknowns. But from a health perspective, I think, it's pretty naive to think that it's anything but bad if you're doing this in an extreme way. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it doesn't, it sounds terrifying in a sense, you know, and it's sad because you think these are high level, you know, and they're looking to perform their best and man, you could do something really drastic and yes, you make weight, but like a lot of the things you just said, it sounds like someone would not be in a state to fight. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting one, right? I guess this is where a lot of the research is um, kind of funny because I think as it stands with a lot of the research, you can cut a lot of weight and you can still perform. And I think it always comes back to, yeah, but at what cost? Mm. Like, even if you can cut the weight, even if you can put it back on and you can go into that cage and you do well, at what cost? Like, how many times can you do that? Or how many times are you kind of dabbling with fate until something bad really happens where you go in there and you've seen this where, 
unfortunately. Maybe or may, maybe it was, or maybe it wasn't due to the weight cut if they're doing except where they get a hit and then they get knocked out and they don't wake back up. Mm-hmm. Or where they get the kidney damage or where they get the liver damage. Or for, for females, they get the reproductive problems, the gastrointestinal, all these problems. We don't really have the evidence to say like, hey, was that due to the weight cutting? But it's like, as a health professional, I would say, yes, it's playing some role. And I think a lot of athletes, especially fighters, will kind of test the waters with that a lot. And by doing these extreme practices, and it's like, well, we don't know, but it's probably not that good. Yeah. Mm. And with with different, it would is it different, the different weight classes between like boxers, MMA fighters, jiu-jitsu? Like, do they, are they, do they go up in like five kilogram increments or 10 kilograms? Like, what are the different weight categories? Yeah, boxing, boxing goes up in, um, yeah, way more. There's a lot more. I think there's like 14 to 16, Muay Thai is even more. The MMA is, is by far the worst because there's the biggest difference between the weight classes. And I think mm. that's why you see a lot of issues with weight cutting within MMA. Boxing, everyone, a lot of people still cut weight, but the difference between the weight classes may only be two and a half kilos or, or you know, a little bit more. So it's not that drastic if you want to change mm-hmm. weight classes. Within MMA, it's, um, yeah, there's a lot bigger differences. Jiu-Jitsu, there's still bigger differences. I think the, the main difference between them that determines what how bad the weight cut is and, and the effect that's on the body is not so much the weight classes, but it's the time to reload and rehydrate before weigh-in so with with um mma especially at the professional level say at the ufc you've got between 30 and 36 hours so with an athlete you can probably push them a little bit more and get a little bit more out of them and be confident that they're going to recover within that 30 to 36 hour window that they'll go on and you've probably you've done it in a way that's going to be least harmful to their health mm-hmm. and may do the most minimal harm to their performance because you've got that 30 36 hours Say with someone with jujitsu, you can go out there and if you cut weight in jujitsu, you can go into the bullpen, they could call you straight away. So you could weigh in and then one minute later, you're on the mats fighting. So if you've cut 5% of your body weight, 6%, 3%, whatever, you're still probably going to feel it because you haven't physically had time to rehydrate, to reload. And that's the difference between all the combat sports. So judo is an overnight one. Wrestling can be morning of, amateur boxing is morning of, but then you've got to weigh in multiple times during the weekend. So, so it's... Personally, I think it's more how much time do you have to recover? That's going to really dictate what your strategy is. Obviously, you'd be far less aggressive with the less time you have. And you probably got a bit more wiggle room with those, you know, the MMA style where you've got 24 plus hours. Yeah. And this might be quite an obvious answer due to the the weight discrepancy and someone just being heavier. But what would be the benefit? Or are there any benefits to just staying the same weight and not weight cutting? Yeah, I, I guess I guess that's exactly right. It's it's this perceived idea of the size advantage, which I, I guess there's two ways. Like I'll comment on it in two 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 angles. I guess academically, this has been studied, and it's kind of fifty fifty. It's like, well, maybe in the uh, striking sports, it doesn't seem to have that much of a difference, and then it seems where sports like judo and grappling, where you can physically like enforce your body weight on someone, it seems like if you have that um that weight advantage or that size advantage yes you will get a benefit i think anyone whoever has trained i think if you've been punched by someone like 10 kilos heavier or 15 kilos heavier than you you definitely feel it like if you've ever been <laughs> sat on by like in jujitsu or wrestling or whatever like if you've been sat on by someone significantly you feel it like there's yeah. a big difference and it's the same both ways if you do it and you're fighting little guys you, you've got a bit more control i think 
that is definitely the case. But I think you have to also understand within a sport like mixed martial arts, it's so multifaceted. And when I say multifaceted is there's so many skills you have to master. It's not say like running where, or, or cycling where you're, where you're mastering the skill of cycling. And then everyone in that competition has probably mastered that skill. So if you can manipulate your weight and cycling and get a be- like a better power to weight ratio, you're probably going to get a benefit from that. And it's going to be advantageous with fighting. If you cut weight and you put on and you come into that, that, that fight five kilos heavier than your opponent but you don't know how to dodge punches you don't know how to throw a punch your jujitsu sucks and you go out like against someone who's a really skillful fighter you're probably going to lose just because they're a better fighter than you Mm. so i think in mma it's a very interesting argument and i've seen this a lot in practice where and i always use the example is like i've got a ufc world champion who cuts next to no weight like he does very little weight but he's probably going to go down as one of the best ever of all time because he is just so so skillful in his sport and it's like i don't think and he's fought guys that are much bigger than him but he's just been better better as a fighter so i guess a lot of it when you're planning these weight cuts and you're doing whatever a big thing to talk about to the athlete is like hey like what's what's your game plan like what's your game here do you wrestle a lot like do you smush these guys up against the fence and like sit on them and, and kind of put your belly in their face or whatever? Is that part of your game plan? Cause it's like, well, maybe then it is a bit advantageous to have that bit of extra weight. Yeah. But then if they're like, Hey, no, like I'm a real technical striker, you know, like I in and out, I counter wrestle. I don't like, maybe it's not that important then. So it's like, it, it's very difficult to, to say. And there's guys like Chris Kirk from Liverpool, John Moores, who's literally studied this for 10 years to try and figure out like, what's the ideal MMA fighter. And it's very difficult to say because there's so many different skills you have to master to be a good MMA fighter. I always say like the result of a fight, you can go out there and fight five rounds for five minutes and get your hand raised by a split decision. You can go out and knock someone out in 30 seconds at the end of the day. Like that was still a win both ways. Like, and, but they've two very different ways about how you got that win. So it's just a very multifaceted sport with lots of skills. So I don't know how much of a factor or, that weight cutting or size advantage plays into all of that yeah it makes so much more sense when you put it like that and how many different options there are and how multifaceted it is like the skill-based approach versus i guess the weight dominance of sitting on someone so yeah yeah absolutely and like so would you say you know in practice obviously it's going to be client specific and athlete specific but do you think there is an advantage to doing a more chronic uh, approach to weight loss or would you say there's more of an advantage to doing more of an acute approach or would it just completely depend in in terms of your weight management or the uh, in terms weight- of like in terms of actually making if you did if you did have an athlete who did want to make weight for a specific weight category like would it be more advantageous to take a more chronic approach and losing a smaller percent of body weight per week or taking a more aggressive approach yeah yeah that's a good question i think Absolutely. If you can do it in a more chronic way where you can better manage your body weight, I think everyone will agree that's probably a better approach. I think when it gets to practice, I think um, it's not always the case. I think with these guys, if you're if you're a professional athlete and these guys train ridiculously hard and they commit their whole life, especially when you get to that high level, I think an eight weeks is a long time. And, and that's probably not even a long time. You guys, like your clients probably do this for six months. But for these guys, it's such an intense thing for eight weeks. And and just being involved in like that sport where you're on the mats and you're with another human being and you're in a physical altercation, it's a very like uh, 
energy demanding and almost like mentally demanding sport. So I think when they finish that fight camp, they like to switch off and you find a lot of them and you, we can talk about say like rebound hyperphagia. Maybe it's a physiological thing where they're making up the lost calories and that's why they blow out. Yes, I think that's definitely a, a part of it, but I think it's so physically and mentally demanding that afterwards I think you need to relax and you need to turn off if you want to be able to do that again and give you that 110%. Don't get me wrong, I'm all for it. Like I think a chronic approach all year round and I have guys that are very good and never blow out to more than 10 to 12% out of their fight weight and it's very easy to manage when it comes to a fight camp. But I think for the large majority, they don't do that. And whether that's a physical thing, whether that's a mental thing, whether that's they just don't want anything to do with it for another four weeks and they want to go out and binge and whatever. I think absolutely you're right. Like a chronic approach and chronic management is definitely the best way to do it. But I don't know in practical sense um, that's going to be as pragmatic. Mm. Yeah, no, but I think that's that's a perfect example of how something can look really good on paper, right? But when you're actually trying to do it in practice, it doesn't always work out like that. I was going to, as you probably know, in bodybuilding, the same exact thing happens after a show when when they just super compensate and binge basically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think as long as you're doing what you need to do as a practitioner to, to make sure, you know, you're, you're checking bloods and making sure, I know, I know probably for bodybuilding, refeeding is probably a thing because you guys are kind of a lot more intense and more extreme for the, mm-hmm. not so much in, in what we do in the time span, but even making sure like a lot of these guys, I'm talking in terms of like a professional fighter who does this and goes out and makes a lot of money on one night and then they have the freedom to say, hey, I'll take two, three months off and then go again. A lot of these guys at the lower levels who are working up to that are probably competing every month or competing every other month. So it's like you kind of have to have that conversation with them. It's like, hey, man, like that's fine and all. Like enjoy yourself afterwards. But, dude, you gotta you got to do this again in like four weeks. Yeah, exactly. Make your life like a bit easier and let's just manage it and do it properly. Those guys will more often than not will do it, even especially if they've done it and they've seen like the effects of rebound hyperphagia where their metabolism slows down and then all of a sudden they put on a bit more body fat and then it gets a little bit harder and then it gets a little bit harder yet again and then they go, oh crap, okay, I'll do this right. For those guys who are competing more frequently, for sure, I think they'll do it. I, but again, like pragmatically for the guys who go out and make a bunch of money for one night, I think they probably want to take a bit of time off and then think about it when they have to. And and like you were talking about before for MMA, like you usually have that like at least two days or a day and a half, you said around 36 hours, right? Yeah. In order yeah. to like replenish and stuff you know, from a dietetic standpoint and sports nutrition, how would you actually go about ensuring that an athlete does replenish with fluid and glycogen and electrolytes? Yes. So again, it's very individual, but you're kind of using the concept of putting back in what you took out. So again, your your approach to that fight week and it, it your fight week strategies is what we call it will determine what you do post weigh-in. So mm-hmm. there's a few fight week strategies where you can do like say a low fiber, low residue where you're just removing the fiber in the diet. You can do like a sodium manipulation where you're just not adding sodium, obviously not to, to hold additional water. You can do a water load where you're water loading, then you're reducing the fluid for, for whatever reason to increase, increase those aquaporin channels to increase that flush of water. Or you can do glycogen reduction where you're, decreasing the the carbohydrates that are coming in exogenously in the in the diet so you're reducing the glycogen stores in the body so if you're using all of them then you have to be replacing them so it first and foremost if you've done say a water cut and it's pretty like you've gone between two and five percent of your body weight and you've sat in a bath or a sauna and you've sweat out for the last however many hours and then you've weighed in 
getting that fluid back in is super important. And then it's not just getting the fluid, it's getting the electrolyte balance, right? So we use, say, like an oral rehydration solution. We make sure that they're getting, you know, classic classic um, sports nutrition guidelines, like 125 to 150% getting it back in, being very um, cautious that if they have cut this weight, you're going to have gastrointestinal um, disturbances. Mm-hmm. So getting that water in and getting it in in a way that you're not going to get, say, osmotic diarrhea or you're not going to mm-hmm. blow it up and, and look like a turtle in, in two hours' time. So getting the fluids, getting your electrolytes in, adding a bit of um, glucose in there to help with the electrolytes coming up and the fluid retention. So that's um, obviously the first phase. And then uh, you can never really calculate. You guys know you can never calculate how much glycogen someone has in their system. It's very difficult. There's a big debate right now, like, can you even fully glycogen reload these guys in that time frame? That's like a discussion for another time. You can get a theoretical number that, hey, I need you to eat this much carbohydrate to put in what I think you need to be replenished. And, mm-hmm. and you'll kind of find like a lot of the the glycogen or the, the reload guidelines are like 10 to 12 grams. I'm pretty sure that's like the recommended. I don't have a single athlete who could possibly eat 10 to 12 grams per kilogram of carbs. Like, yeah, or that. even drinking it, even if you were trying to drink that through Gatorade or something, it would be so much fluid. Yeah, yeah that's a lot of tummy aches, I think. So, um, <laughs> and um, like even during camp, I think like the highest, pragmatically, you'll see like these athletes, if they're in a calorie deficit to lose weight, is around five. So, if you can match that in that post weigh in period and make sure that they're getting it in and getting it in frequently, and again, you're not like, I'm very cautious that of the rule of you never want to introduce anything right before a competition that you haven't done in the fight camp. So it's like, I don't really want to say to these guys, hey, we haven't gone to, you know, Pizza Hut to the buffet in eight weeks. So let's go to Pizza Hut buffet. And I need you to get 10 to 12 grams of kilogram, you know, body weight of carbs. So go ham, dude, like go eat whatever you can. Like, it's like, okay, well, if we're eating, you know, rice and whatever and rice cakes and your cereals and whatever throughout camp, let's try and hit this number that your theoretical glycogen number and and we'll do it through these foods. So I guess they're they're the big ones that you want to um, get them back in. I guess sleep is the other thing that I'm very mindful of. It's like that overnight sleep the night before. But um, fluids, electrolyte, get the glucose in to help that up, and then glycogen reload. And um, if you've been using like a low-fiber approach, it's always a good idea to keep that low-fiber approach mm-hmm. as they're going into the fight because, um, yeah, you can have explosive consequences if you <laughs> don't follow that. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, interestingly, so like – for bodybuilders, sometimes if they're fortunate enough to have enough time before a competition, they will do a practice peak week per se. Um, but would you ever do a practice fight week with an athlete? So they're not even actually going to compete, but just to see how they would respond to these protocols so that you could have that time to tweak things, manipulate things. Do you ever yeah, implement yeah, those? Sure. If, if you, if you've got the time for sure, like if for the guys that we have, um, say on year round contracts and we're working with them year round for sure. Like, cause it's good because you can do the numbers and you can say, Hey, theoretically, I think with a low fiber diet, you could lose anywhere between 0.5 and 3% of your body weight. Like that's a big difference. 0.5 mm-hmm. and 3% of your body weight and say, Hey, we're going to do this sodium manipulation, this water manipulation. You could lose between one and 3% of your body weight. It's like, yeah, well, which one is it? Like, cause mm-hmm. if you're going at the lower end for all these, and I think glycogen is the best example. It's like, you could, lose anywhere between like one and five percent of your body weight depending on like on how much glycogen you naturally hold and your training status and and whatever else but if you're going the lower end of those numbers that's a lot lower number than if you're going at the higher end for all Mm -hmm. of them 
So if you're trying to plan and you're like, okay, well, I don't really know how they're going to respond. You could have two different athletes and be in two very different situations come the morning of that way. And so if you time permits, if time permits, absolutely, like absolutely do a um, trial run, get those numbers. It's like, okay, if it's going to be 0.5 or three, let's try and figure out what one it is. And so when it comes to game time, we can do it. You can't, you're not always in the position where you can do that, especially if you've got short notice fights, new clients or, or whatever. There are certain things, I think, with experience when you see particular body types, particular training protocols, particular ways people eat food that you could probably get just from experience. Hey, this guy's probably going to be on the lower end of what they'll lose through a water load or what they'll lose through their fiber or this guy eats like so much fiber in his normal diet. So when we remove it that fight week, he's probably going to drop a lot. Like I know this guy is like, he's super, his body composition is super bulky and probably super explosive. So he probably has a lot more glycogen so we can rely on that one a bit more. But like you said, you don't really know until you try it out. So yeah, yeah. I, I highly recommend if you, if you're in the position, then test it out for sure. Oh, interesting. So, you know, Jordan, we do want to be respectful of your time. So we know we have to head off soon, but you know, like, is there any exciting or new emerging research in this area that you're personally working on right now or that you want to share? But um, yeah, me and Alex from um, Sports Nutrition Australia at the moment, like I said, there's no real best practice guidelines in this at the moment. And I guess I'm in a very fortunate position with the athletes that I work in and the connections I've been able to make over the last few years where I have access to who I would consider the top experts in this in this field and people who, are, who have mentored me and, and, and really given a lot to me and my practice I I've kind of organized with Alex to get us all together and, and kind of go through this and I think there's a lot of um there's a lot of guidelines at the moment where they review the evidence and and I've been on the review board for a lot of them where you say okay we can go through all of this what we just spoke about but I'm not very confident that if say any of us when we graduated university if we read those like, okay, this is all what all the evidence says about combat sports, you'd actually know what to do with it. So mm -hmm. what we're doing and what we're working on is saying, okay, we'll get these top minds in the field who do this across research, guys that do this across practice, and then you've got the, you know, the pracademics that do a bit of both. What we're gonna do is get everyone together and say, hey, these are all the points we need to discuss and consider whenever we're talking about, say, an MMA athlete who's making weight. We're gonna talk about all those points within a fight camp, within a fight week and within a post weigh in period. And we're going to say, here's all the data that we do have. Here's all the evidence we have. Here's everything we don't know, but we want to know. And this is how we reconcile the two within practice. So, so that's, that's what we're working on at the moment. And um, yeah, super excited. It's super cool to get all those people together. Like, again, I'm in a very fortunate position where I've been able to kind of link and talk to all of them over the last few years, but it's cool seeing them all together and kind of butting their heads and putting these ideas apart because as it stands right now, it, I would think it would be very tough for a for a new grad or someone who say if 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 a combat athlete walked into their office and said, "Hey, I want to make weight," it'd be pretty tough, I think, just by reading the literature that's out there to go, "Oh, mm. okay, I can confidently do this." But um, so that's something that's um pretty exciting that we're working on. I guess emerging area of research, I think, is in everywhere in every sport is obviously the female athlete part of it. I think um, from my own experience doing that whole conversation we just had would be completely different for a female athlete. I, I don't care what anyone says. If, if you try to tell me that the female athlete and the male athlete are the same, I'll slap you and tell you <laughs> because they're absolutely not. And, and, and when it, you put that in context of making weight and, and, you know, having to drop significant parts of their, their, their body mass and then reload them and, and then go through all those processes, I think you're just 
need to consider so many more things with the female athletes. So that's an area of um, research that I'm very excited and, and hoping that there's a lot more coming out. I know there's a few groups in England doing a lot of good work in there and doing case studies over professional fighters with, within MMA and, and they're, they're, you know, assessing their, their energy balance throughout a fight camp and throughout a fight week and taking bloods and taking all these other metrics to see, hey, if, if they're eating at, say, below the 30, 30 kilocal um, recommendation, or do they get dysfunction if they're eating between 30 or 45 or do they have some type of resilience if they're eating because it's not uncommon with fighters to be eating at an energy balance of say zero to five or five to ten just because that's what you have to do to make weight but no one's really looked at well what's the acute and chronic effects of that especially for a female because I don't know, males are fine at all but we're not reproducing the population and you know carrying on the legacy of humans so, so i think it's a bit more important within the female so so that's an area that i'm super interested to see where the research goes yeah it sounds like especially for those people who don't utilize evidence-based practice because they can't get their hands on it or they don't have an easy access i think this is really going to change that avenue for them yeah that's yeah. the idea Ho hopefully we'll see absolutely and the more brains the better you know so all of you guys coming together sounds amazing and i can't wait to keep following along it sounds like there's still like you guys know a lot, but again, there's still so much more to know, just like everything in science, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I think we've come leaps and bounds in the last, especially say the last five years, but I think it, it's that age-old saying in science, hey, like, the more you know, the, the less you know type thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so before we head off today, we just have one last question, which we ask all of our interviewees, and that is one interesting thing that you learned this weekend it doesn't necessarily need to be related to nutrition and exercise but just one interesting thing um i guess one interesting thing i suppose if we're talking about project management is that it's very easy to project manage and do a big project on paper but convincing eight of the best minds in the world to all uh get involved and be on deadlines and and meet the deadlines and <laughs> expecting everyone's schedules to line up is probably uh is probably a bit harder than what I may have thought prior. So I think that was the biggest, <laughs> biggest learning this weekend. Yeah, it would be easier if everyone could just, just cooperate, right? <laughs> yeah, everyone get on my schedule to make it easy for me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so so you, um, Jordan, like, where can people find you? Where can people get in contact? Like, please put in a few plugs for yourself. Um, yes, yeah, so we're on Facebook. So you can find us at The Fight Dietitian um, on Instagram, The underscore Fight Dietitian. I just jumped on Twitter in this year, and that, that's a scary place that I don't know if I want to stay there. But, but Fight Dietitian, at Fight Dietitian on Twitter. Uh, if you want to hit us up on the email, info at thefightdietitian.com is the best one to do. Or we have the website, www.thefightdietitian.com. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've even I've tuned into a few of your podcast episodes as well. Your podcast is awesome too. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's that. It's a it's a cool little resource, and I guess the idea behind that is is very similar to what you guys are doing, right? Is to to get people in the industry who are doing evidence based practice and, and kind of get that evidence out in a digestible way. So the idea of the podcast is to get the researchers on and me to act as like the filter to you know them talk in a uh, nerd talk and then kind of say, okay, this is how it works in um in the real world and come out. So yeah, the fight science podcast. If anyone's listening and interested in that side of it. Yeah, well, thanks so much again for coming on, Jordan. We really appreciate it. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners will learn a lot. Everyone, if you're listening, please remember to repost it onto your Instagram stories. Tag myself, tag Tierra, tag TBD, tag Jordan as well. And we'll see you guys next week. <laughs>